we really need to move the needle on low retention, low application to really powerful impact of learning and development. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 31 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Bob Dean, who's the CEO of Dean Learning and Talent Advisors, LLC. Bob and I have a discussion about the book, The Experience Economy by Gilmore and Pine, which leads us into a deeper conversation about virtual facilitation and virtual learning. We both believe that the current state of corporate virtual facilitation and learning contains very little interaction, and we're just pushing PowerPoint slides to the audience. We do know that the audience is not present, not in the moment, and not focused 100% because they are multitasking. Present company included when I'm taking a WebEx type of webinar, just being honest. However, We discuss a platform called Think Tank that creates this virtual interaction in learning, in collaboration, and in meetings. This platform is a game changer in virtual facilitation and learning. We discuss a number of ways that Think Tank can be applied from strategic planning to better business writing. Now, I'm not going to give away too much, but this is a wonderful and thought-provoking interview and a great way to start 2017. Now, one of my goals with this podcast is to help you begin to make a change in your work and personal lives so that you can better connect with others and create meaningful business relationships. Many people have said it takes 21 days to start a habit, but it takes a lifetime to keep that pattern. That's why I created the Yes And Challenge to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscle. To sign up, please go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and scroll down to the Yes and Challenge Call to Action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of Yes and and the principles of improvisation. And to remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag Yes and Challenge. If you are unaware of what the Yes and Challenge is all about, I discuss it in detail in episode zero, so go back, take a listen. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Along with you can purchase my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership and in Life, on Amazon. It's available in paperback and on Kindle. Well, with that said, let's get to the interview with Bob Dean. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm with Bob Dean, who's a collaborator, innovator, and talent developer. And first and foremost, Bob, thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be part of my podcast. My pleasure, Pete. Anything for you. Oh, thank you so very much. Bob, why don't you take a moment and tell the audience a little bit about Bob Dean, what you do, how you got to where you are, 
just so everybody has like a baseline before we get into our conversation. Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm a by fundamental background, I'm a CPA. I started out in public accounting right out of college and spent seven years doing audits of public companies, middle market companies, tremendous experience, foundational in my career. And that was with one of the, at the time, big eight firms. Uh, and I quickly moved into learning and development by chance. Uh, I became part of the audit education team of what was then Arthur Young. And uh, as Ernst & Young became a merged firm, I was the head of audit training for the firm. And then I got into an, a lot of technology and learning innovation. So I was very intrigued when the internet first came out and we got laptops in these firms and trying to find new ways to do learning beyond the classroom. So I spent 25 years at EY and then I became the chief learning officer of Grant Thornton. And that's when I moved to Chicago. That was a great experience. Uh, that firm had a much smaller firm than a, at the time a big four, but was really uh, ready to do a lot of learning innovation. And then I became the global head of learning for Hydric and Struggles, the executive search firm, which is where I really got more into the talent management, talent development area, because that's what that firm does. They, uh, they're, they're focused on talent and helping companies find the best talent. So that's, uh, that's my career in, in large companies, Pete. But then since then, I've had my own firm uh, consulting with companies on learning and development, talent management, and one of my new favorite topics, customer experience. Uh, I got certified in a book called The Experience Economy, which I know you're aware of, uh, about now 10 years ago. And that was pretty life-changing for me because I believe that learning and development needs to be a life-changing experience for people. And too often, so I'm, work, I'm working on uber learning, as you've called it, uh, our learning innovation with virtual classrooms and e-learning and many other things right now. So long answer, but hopefully that's helpful. I think that is. And we met, I think it was back in 2011 at the Business Learning Institute's Thought Leader Conference. And what struck me on your quote-unquote TED Talk that we did that day, this whole thing around the experience economy, it's really piqued my interest. And I, uh, as I've gotten to know you, I think I've read the book I, well, I read it cover to cover, but I periodically go back and reread it because it is, it talks a lot about what's, what's currently in business, but I look at it as it talks a lot about the opportunities that businesses have in order to create a better experience within whatever platform they're on, whether the customers, and we talk about customers, we can talk about the internal customer and the external customer. Uh, and, and I love the story of, uh, of coffee. How coffee has gone from beans to, over time, the experience of going to Starbucks. And why do we go to Starbucks? Yeah, it's a great story of the experience economy. Another one, Pete, would be Apple. When the iPod and the iPhone came out, you know, Apple was trying to attract a new customer base with some very innovative products. But the Apple experience became much more than just the device in your hand. When they came out with iTunes, iTunes online became a part of that experience that extended the device to get you music and other content. And then when they came out with the Apple Store, the experience all of a sudden became more physical and real 
and people will go into Apple stores, not necessarily to buy something, but just to browse, perhaps talk to the geniuses at the Genius Bars, perhaps talk to each other about their experience with Apple products. And ultimately, as you know, Apple's retailing environment actually leapfrogged all the other retailers. So they want to be like Apple because of the Apple experience. Hopefully that's helpful in explaining the experience economy. Oh, oh that is because I, I look at my own computing purchasing and I used to be all in Dell. And I'll just say back then, I don't know how many years I've been outside of after I, I after I left Dell, I, I didn't have that great customer experience. But once I came to Apple, it has been a wonderful customer experience in, in all aspects. And it's got me now all in Apple. But I, I know we're not here to talk about Apple and, and, and everything around it. The, the thing I, one of the things I really want to discuss today, you are, I'm going to say a pioneer. You're a pioneer in this, this virtual facilitation, the virtual classroom. And we're not talking WebEx. We're not talking just a, a, a PowerPoint slide. It's how to facilitate a, a, a virtual classroom, a virtual meeting. And I'm just going to throw that to you and let you run with it. Okay. Well, I've been passionate about virtual meetings, virtual collaboration, virtual learning. Ever since I saw the first virtual meeting platform, which was back in about 1997, and I got very excited about the potential for the virtual classroom, Pete, because I, I could see uh, subject matter experts being able to extend their reach to many, many more people than they ever could when they were in a classroom. And I thought we would have a revolution on learning with virtual classrooms. Unfortunately, we're 20 years later, and it really has not taken off as much as I had hoped and expected. And I think a lot of it is due to the challenges with virtual facilitation. If you combine the challenges of doing that with the uh, overload of PowerPoint that we have in business, uh, PowerPoint has not only had a negative impact on face-to-face -face meetings and learning, but it's had a huge negative impact on the web because we all go to webinars and we all, in most of the webinars we attend, we see 80% of the time spent pushing PowerPoint out. I'm sure you can relate to that. Uh, yes. And very little time spent interacting with the audience, either through polling, through texting, or worse yet, through voice. Because people are probably on mute multitasking, and if you call on them, uh, <laughs> they'll have to scramble to come back and answer you. So that, that's kind of the current state. But I haven't let that hold me back. I really believe that. As businesses go global and as the millennials become such a significant part of the workforce, that virtual learning, virtual meetings will become a differentiator for many companies. And uh, I'm working with some right now that are passionate about achieving that differentiation. So, and, and we've had this conversation 
for many years. We're talking about virtual learning, not virtual compliance, <laughs> where we're just checking the box. This is about true learning in an online environment. Because I, I, this is something else I, I remember from your TED Talk on the experience economy about scrap and learning. And when you walk out of a classroom, how much is being held back? How much are you retaining? And then how long after that, are you down to maybe you're only retaining 10 to 20 percent, which we should be retaining a lot more leaving a classroom? Yeah, I know that's one of the deep, dark secrets of uh, not only co the corporate training environment, of which, as you know, companies spend billions of dollars on corporate training for a variety of reasons, sometimes for compliance, sometimes because employees just feel entitled to training as part of what they get every year whether they have compliance requirements or not. And sometimes it's used for strategic purposes, but it's not always effective. We really need to move the needle on low retention, low application to really powerful impact of learning and development. And I, I've spent a lot of my career trying to do this, and I'll probably spend the rest of my career trying to help companies do it and trying to do it myself. Well, if we think back to when we first met and you introduced the platform of Think Tank to me, and I'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. When I was introduced to it, I think one of the first things I mentioned is, oh, my God, this would be the greatest thing for learning. How do we develop a course around it? And, and I think in 2011, I'm still somewhat new, but can you describe to the audience and tell us more about the Think Tank platform because I, I you know I, I, I think it's the game changer out there. Yes, I, I have used a lot of uh, virtual web platforms and some of them unfortunately have been very good, Pete, but have actually uh, gone away because the company got acquired and the software got retired. So we've had some really good ones over the years, but today we basically know four or five that are primarily used for meetings, and that would be, you know, things like WebEx and uh, GoToMeeting and uh, others, Adobe's products. But Think Tank has actually been around for over 25 years. So it was pre-internet. This was not somebody's really good idea when they saw the web. It actually was an outgrowth of research that was being done at a university by faculty and the research was on collaboration. And this was way ahead of their time, back in the late 80s, researching collaboration. And what they came up with was some guiding principles for best practices in collaboration. And one of them was the importance of anonymity. Now, if you think back to the late 80s, Pete, most of the collaboration that was going on was in a conference room with flip charts. And, and so if you called out an idea, the only way it would have been anonymous is if you would have had a mask on and, <laughs> and uh, muffled your voice. Because otherwise, everybody knew well, that came from Pete and he's the boss and I'm not going to take issue with that. So Think Tank created a software platform at the time the company was called Group Systems that allowed people to enter their ideas, say, in a simple response to a brainstorming question. And when they typed in their response, it was anonymous. 
And so if you had 10 people online together, and again, this could have been in a room. At the time, people could walk into a conference room, a laptop would be ready for them to sit down at, the software would have been installed, and then the facilitator would start the brainstorming process or the polling process, and it was all anonymous. And that really has been a breakthrough because if you think about uh, virtual meetings where you want to get collaboration, or where you virtual learning, where you want collaborative learning to happen. And the anonymity opens it up. People are being more open, they're more honest, they're more eager to participate, they don't hold back. And that's the fundamental of Think Tank from the time it first was started. And I, they, the, the company and its platform have had a long journey but I started using it in my consulting business five years ago, and I use it every day. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you provide a lot of feedback to group systems, think tank, on things that they could be doing, other things they could be adding to this platform. And they've made a number of changes based off of your uh, suggestions over the years. Yeah, I mean, they have a number of, they have a few people in the country and around the world because it is being used globally who really do use it all the time and those power users are able to give them ideas and tips and you know as with any software platform and we talked about this if you really want to master a platform and that that's hard because very few people have mastered powerpoint or word you really get to the point where you begin to see little glitches and challenges that need to be fixed. And every time you do a new version of the software, whoever it is, they try to fix the little thing. So, you know, I enjoy helping them continuously improve their software. Okay, so let's let's talk about being anonymous. So I, when, when I think you were talking brainstorming, and, and this platform can be used here in you in Chicago, but you could be have your have your team from around the world on here, and you're 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 doing a brainstorming. And the great thing is we're all anonymous, which takes me back to one of the brainstorming things that I teach is with the use of post-it notes, because those who are in our profession tend to be a little bit more uh, introverted, per se. I may not want to say something because of that fear. So if we're going through a brainstorming session, just write something on a post-it note, stick it on the wall. I, I can't read handwriting. I'm getting ideas out of people's heads. To me, I, when I think about how powerful that is just from a post-it notes perspective and knowing what I know about Think Tank, I look at, at Think Tank as the superhero in this whole thing. No, there's no doubt. Um, when you, we, we do have a problem more and more today reading people's writing because we don't hand write that much. We're typing all the time. We're typing an email. And so when you do use post-it notes, you do run the risk that you can't read a lot of what goes up. And if you can't read it and you wanted to capture it later and type it up, you can't get it all because you can't read it. So in Think Tank, it's kind of natural, Pete. Everybody's in email, responding to emails, composing emails every day. Sometimes they have typos and they get caught by spell check. So we all know how to type. And some of us type really fast. And in Think Tank, if a, po a question gets posed and I have 10 people online together, I can get 30 responses in about two minutes. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm working on a very creative application with Think Tank, which is uh, I'm working with the great-grandniece of Thomas Edison, uh, Sarah Miller Caldecott, and 
we are doing um, very strategic innovation sessions on Think Tank. And we have a, an application in an activity, I should say, where we, we ask people in a small group, seven or eight people, to list a bunch of needs that they have related to a problem they're trying to solve. What are the needs of the users? And it's amazing how seven people can use Think Tank and they can generate 50 to 60 needs that are very substantive in just about 10 minutes. And then once we've got the list, we can use the categorization functions of Think Tank to bucket the ideas, discuss them in buckets, move them around, copy them, and then finally take the buckets and rank them. So it's a, it's a very iterative collaboration process that Think Tank enables. But to drive this home, you and I talked about this a long time ago. I mean, you taught courses in IFRS. And, you know, when you, would, when you would get into a course with people who needed to learn IFRS, probably one of the first things you wanted to know is, well, what questions do you have about IFRS? And if you're standing in the front of a classroom and you ask that, you may be lucky to have one or two hands go up. Partly because people don't know what to ask. They don't want to look like they're not knowledgeable. Well, but with Think Tank and the anonymity, they can type in their real questions, even the stupid ones. <laughs> and then they can see what other people are typing. And they may think, wow, I got that same question. Let me word it slightly differently because of my situation. And now as an instructor, you you got great raw material to make your class better. So that's just an example of how this can be used with learning and a technical topic even. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. And I know we've talked about that a lot and, and, and the ability f for people to feel f uh, much more freer in asking questions, making comments. And you and I both know the only stupid question out there is the one that's never asked because nine times out of 10, there's really no such thing as, as that quote unquote stupid question. Can you just, I mean, I know that you have, you, you've got a pilot course out there on business writing that I set through a 90-minute version thereof. And, and I, I've got a face-to-face a, you know, -face course on business writing. And I think my immediate response after that 90 minutes was, oh my God, this thing is awesome. It, 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 it's doing what it's supposed to be doing in that type of classroom. Can you give us like an overview of that class? Yes, it's actually a course that I have uh, been using as a chief learning officer with a consultant who's been a long-term colleague of mine. And we ran that course at uh, Grant Thornton and other firms. And it was a classroom course. So it was a two-hour course or a four-hour course. And it was targeted at groups of people who did similar types of writing. So auditors, national office technicians who were writing white papers and responses to interpretations of FASB bulletins. Think about that how important that writing is. And it was so that it could be customized for different audiences. And it was extremely well received. And I think more and more it was because it was an opportunity to actually do some writing in the class, okay? Not just look at PowerPoint slides. It wasn't like going back to college. But what was really striking when we started doing this online, Pete, is we would ask the question of everyone who came, what writing training have you had in your career? 
And it was astounding. The answers were coming back. A wide variety of people in a lot of different farms were they were going back to college or high school, and they hadn't had any formal writing training in their companies. And this it wasn't really surprising, but to get it validated through responses, and you you saw that in the class you went to, was pretty amazing. And it really does show a huge gap in the communication skills of people in business. And so everything they learn and, and they do from habit, they may read some good emails and see some things they like and change, but they're really not getting a chance to have training from an expert in business writing. And that's what we're doing is we're running a writing for today and tomorrow course that's highly interactive in Think Tank. And my role, my role is to be the virtual facilitator. And Kurt Peoples' role is as the subject matter expert because he's been teaching business writing courses for 20 years. You said something very important there. You are the virtual facilitator of this course. Let's talk about skills and being a virtual facilitator. What are some of the key skills in being a virtual facilitator? Yeah, it's a really great question because this is a, a key competency of the future, I believe. And I, I, kinda, I have done so much training of people over the years in presentation skills and facilitation skills related to that, that I basically, and I'm passionate about doing it. So I... I want to improve. I take feedback very seriously. And I have gotten myself to where I'm very confident when I go into a virtual facilitation situation, even with executives who obviously you better keep engaged or they could be out of there in five or <laughs> 10 minutes. And for example, we recently did a series of virtual focus groups, and these were attended by senior people. In a, in a professional services firm, and we kept them engaged in a virtual focus group and on a very important topic for two hours. And it was very exciting to see the, the not only the engagement and the contributions, but the level and quality of input that we were able to gather in Think Tank in that time frame. But I think if you go back to the skills, I think one of the things that makes people anxious about doing this, first off, is they can't see their audience. So, you know, when you don't know how your audience is reacting, it could be negative. It could be people multitasking. It could be people who are, you know, even left, they've left the room and you don't know. <laughs> then that causes one level of anxiety. But the, the, the bigger issues around the skills is, is how you pose questions and how you gain responses that you aren't necessarily expecting. So if going back to the IFRS example, you could get 30 questions and you might see 15 that you can't answer and you might immediately get anxious about, well, how am I going to respond to this? So you have to have a confidence of kind of going, being able to improvise, perhaps uh, looking at new questions that come in that you're not familiar with and perhaps going back and asking for follow-up or Perhaps connecting the dots between a few questions improvisationally and going back to the group. So I think one of the things that we've talked about is improvisation. 
is uh, a really important skill for virtual facilitation. And I don't know if that'll make sense immediately to people, but uh, it's something that we could probably spend a whole hour on. Well, yeah, I was kind of leading the witness there because I, I we have had a long conversation about improvisation skills and virtual facilitation because you're dealing with the unknown. So you have to be listening to what is being said, whether that listening is what has been written or on the call. And you have to be completely focused in order to adapt to the situation. And, and I know that you and I, I we spent a lot of time earlier this year talking about virtual facilitation through the use of improvisation, so much so that we both attended, along with a colleague, Alice, we went and attended a workshop at Second City called Improv for Business. Yes, that was extremely powerful. And uh, it really kind of crystallized for me some of the things I was already doing naturally and being able to understand that certain of the improvisation techniques at Second City uh, are really very relevant to business. And I've been actually involved with Second City people training business people for years. Uh, And generally, it's seen by business people as something that's kind of fun and out of the box, but not necessarily totally relevant to the way they uh, interact with each other or with clients. But in the world we're living in now, in this instant world, Pete, where you know we a lot of people expect an instant response uh, on the web. Uh, if you get a text and it's somebody texting you to get information and you don't respond quickly for whatever reason, it's going to leave an impression. It's like, well, I wonder why he doesn't respond. Does he not know what to say? Does he not know the answer or is he not there? So this notion of the instant response in a face-to-face situation or in a virtual situation like we're in, it it requires some level of improvisation sometimes to be able to respond quickly. And I think the relevance of improv is greater now in business than it ever has been. The other thing is we, we, we know there's a new book out from Second City called Yes And. And we learned that the power of Yes And is very, very uh, relevant to virtual facilitation. So let me, again, make this clear, because when we have a webinar where there's 47 PowerPoint slides in an hour and five minutes of Q&A has been carved out at the end, there's no room for improvisation there. No. The PowerPoint is there. It's not going to be changed. <laughs> and um, if somebody goes off topic, the presenter usually goes right back to the PowerPoint. But if you're in a virtual learning program where there's only six PowerPoint slides in two hours, and most of the content is going to be created by the learners, in response to questions, doing activities, doing polls, then the facilitators have to be ready for anything. And not only that, but every session they do could be different. Different questions, different responses, and improv is really an important part of being effective. Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> yeah, just a, just a tad bit, and and just so the audience knows, I did not bribe Bob and 
and this response, this is something that he I he had a copy of my book and he's been reading my magazine articles and he one of them, one of the articles really struck him and we got into this conversation about Wow, I didn't really realize I've been improvising the whole time I'm doing virtual facilitation because really I'm not working with the script. Really, and, and, and tie it back to the experience economy, I'm I'm working with my learners and, and adapting a program to provide a different type of classroom experience for them. So when they walk out, they're walking out retaining more information than they would from a PowerPoint-driven type of presentation. Well, actually, it's great that you brought it back to the experience economy because the tagline for that book on the cover is work is theater and and every business a stage. And when I got certified in that book, my goal was to change that to learning is theater and every classroom a stage. And now when I use virtual, I've got to say learning is theater and every virtual learning platform is a stage. So there's a chapter in the book, Pete, called The Four Forms of Theater, because if they're going to have theater on the front of the book, they better talk about it. And Pine and Gilmore, the authors, took it upon themselves when they wrote this book to get educated on the four forms of theater. And one of the four forms of theater is improv. Yep. And so when we took your book around improv and the experience economy, I then I made a connection that I had seen at a, a fairly high level, but now I see that it's the future. I believe it's the future, and I don't. You don't hear the word improvisation in business that often today, but I think if I'm going to be passionate about the impact of virtual facilitation and virtual learning for the rest of my career then I'll be talking about improv a lot from here on out. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you've embraced the passion because I and I think when I first read uh, Experience Economy, I, I love the first part of it when it talks about how we've gone from mom making a cake to Chuck E. Cheese on birthdays. But it was it was that second half of that book when they were talking about every business was the theater aspect of it, which I really gravitated to. And obviously, I saw the, the improv piece, which really you know, struck my attention. But then I think about when we all left uh, Chicago. I think that was in like uh, April of 2016. So we left with, okay, we went in with kind of my book. We understood my, you know, my perspective of it. We got the perspective of Second City through the Yes And book, which I've, I've bought and, and read a couple of times. And it was so easy to make that tie-in to the experience economy. But I, I, I love the twist you just added to it. And, and you ha- I've never heard you say this before, but I'm a complete believer in this where learning is a theater. We're there to perform. And, and I guess when I think about it, I, I really feel much more confident when I say I am the chief edutainment officer. Yeah. Because I look at it as a theater. Well, you know, another word that we, we, Alice and you and I had a big aha together with at Second City, the training was ensemble, the word ensemble. And this is, I was just at Second City last Saturday with my wife at a show called Unelectable, which is very, <laughs> very timely for today's political environment. Uh, by the time people hear of this podcast, the election may be over, Pete, but. Right now, it's still uncertain. 
And I watched with new, fresh perspectives what was happening on that stage because the ensemble that had been chosen to play in that show, and there were six people, were unbelievable in their ability to work together, to co-create, to have each other's back and make sure that they were going to be successful in whatever they were trying to do spontaneously. And I think another aspect of virtual learning is if you have a three-hour program on writing for today and tomorrow, and you have two facilitators and a couple of client sponsors in the virtual program, along with 20 participants, those facilitators and those client sponsors or color commentators, if you will, they've got to be an ensemble. They they can't be a siloed group who's never talked to each other before. How many, many times in training have we seen over the years where the, the client sponsor comes in to open the program and then immediately leaves the room? And that's not an ensemble. That's a siloed approach to learning. And if if learning is a theater, if learning is theater, then learning requires an ensemble of people to get the job done. And part of the ensemble, Pete, may just be people who got involved in the design process and a dry run, and they're very excited about what's going to happen, but they not, don't have to always be there for the, the live or the archived experience. You were talking about the show that you saw, Second City, and we talk about an ensemble, and we talk about taking current events or being adaptable to the current environment that's out there. And I remember that you sent me uh, an email saying that you, you were uh, going to be attending this, and then you sent me another email after that and said, and this, so this was right around the Olympics. Yes. And do you remember that email that you sent me? Yeah. The, uh, Ryan Lochte had just become a star for the wrong reasons uh, <laughs> at the end of the Olympics. And uh, it had just happened four days before. And this show had been going for several weeks. But Ryan Lochte be, not only became a topic in the show, so they changed the, the show because of that. But there actually was a multimedia element to that Second City show on the stage that I'm eager for you to see because his picture was also up on the stage, on the screen. Wow. That, that's really adapting to the current situation, making things relevant. And, we, and, if, and if we can do that into the classroom as well, because as you, as you described earlier, I've got 47 PowerPoints that I'm going to, I'm going to drill through. And how often are we a, a, adapting those to, to what, what's out current in, in the learning environment or even what's happening in, in, in today's world and, and bringing that into the classroom? It has a much stronger impact in the learning process than, you know, I, I base that, the better story we can tell in the classroom, the more we're able to retain. So there's another thing going on in the learning space that is diff using different language, but you you probably heard it. I've heard it. It's called the the flipped classroom, where the notion is take some of that content, some of those forty seven powerpoints, and maybe a video off YouTube or TED Talk or whatever, and make it pre work, so that when we do bring the group together, we don't have to read the PowerPoint. 
we assume you digested it, however you got it, and whatever that content was in pre-work. And if it took you more time than somebody else, that's fine. Uh, you, you're doing it by yourself, so you take the time it needs. But once we come together as a community of learners, let's use that time for collaboration. You know, we both know Tom Hood. He's mm-hmm. he's been he's been on your podcast. He's a huge believer in the fact that he believes that collaboration is the future of learning and that collaboration is actually more important than experience. And what we're getting at there, we all know we learn from experience. We have just in the audit world, we had significant experiences with client projects and we learned from those. But how often did we actually share them? You know, when did we get a chance to, other other than at the water cooler back in those days, you know, (laughs) how did we share them? Well, now we can share experiences through collaboration. We can get them out quicker. We can get response to them quicker. And the essence is that collaboration is more important as a learning design element today. And so if we can get that that content behind us in pre-work, we can then use the live time to collaborate. And one of the things that you saw in that writing course that I'm really excited about, and this is hard to do, is using Think Tank for pre-work because you can design some very compelling activities that might include questions and polls. And the thing that what I've seen lately is really encouraging. People actually will do it. Because they've been used to this concept of pre-work through email. And you sending out a PDF of a white paper as the instructor, telling people they need to read it, and saying, oh, by the way, if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and email me back. Well, if that really happens and everybody gets CC'd, we've got an immediate overload of stuff that most people don't want. So the notion of going into think tank and individually providing your comments, your input, read the white paper, but put your comments in, in an activity that everybody can read, that's been very well received. You took me down a path I haven't thought of before, but you were talking about pre-work and the flipped classroom. And those who do the pre-work and those who participate in the pre-work can collaborate much at a higher level than those who do not do the work, which took me back to my first early stages of being introduced to improvisation because I still, I tell the story when it was on my, my third workshop and I'm still trying to figure it out. And the instructor, after we were done, said, okay, for next week, I want everybody to go out and research the 70s, book, music, current events, shows, movies, whatever, just research the 70s. And those of us who did, and that was pre-work, those of us who did that pre-work, we came in the next week and we rocked. Those who didn't failed miserably. And as you were describing, this pre-work piece took me right back to that because in that virtual classroom, we're all coming with what we've read and we can apply what we know and our experiences into to be much more collaborative in that environment than if we're just pushing PowerPoint out. Bingo. Well, I will um, I will go back to the experience economy again because 
the reason this book is so compelling and that the authors have been able to certify uh, over 200 people in the world in the models and frameworks of the book is because uh, every chapter, just as I talked about the four forms of theater, has a new model. And one of the models that I learned from this book was the the five stages of an experience. So we think about an experience, and I have a great experience that you know about frequently, and that's going to Wrigley Field <laughs> to watch a Cubs game. Uh, and that's my immersion in the game. That's my engagement with the game. But there are two parts of that experience on each side that people often don't think about. And on the front end, there's attracting people to the experience and then entering the experience. And at Wrigley this year, the entering process was actually unique because we had to go through security uh, screening to get into the stadium for the first time ever. Oh, wow. So, not, not necessarily viewed as going to be a positive experience, but they've actually made it a positive experience because they realize we don't want entering the stadium to become a downer for people who are excited about coming to a Cups game. And then the other side of the experience is exiting and extending the experience. And so the exiting process is at Wrigley, it's walking out no matter when you're leaving the stadium and having all these smiling people with Wrigley caps on and cups caps on, thanking you for coming and hoping you come back soon. That's just a little thing, but it does leave you out with a smile on your face. And then of course, extending the experience is when I email you when I get home and tell you about this great Cubs game I went to or the great second city thing I went to. And we're talking about it now. So we're extending the experience. Now, that's a long way of sharing where pre-work fits in. Pre-work is attracting people to the learning experience and entering the learning experience. And when you have entered the experience through some compelling pre-work, you're ready to go when the live experience starts. Does that make sense? Yes, and you become you're able to contribute at a higher level than you were you would be able to, and that's that's the beauty of it. It's the level of contribute uh, what you contribute to the conversation, how we build on the conversation, and your experience and knowledge, and helping to grow that conversation. And yes, you are. Uh, I am very jealous of Bob because of his season tickets at Wrigley. I've been to Wrigley. I've extended the experience, but I think my version of extending the experience was going to Sluggers after the game uh, and maybe going to Sluggers even before the game. But, uh, you know, and then I'd go to the Atlanta ballpark and you can't extend the experience because you leave and there's nothing there uh, in that extended experience. Well, you know, extending the experience at Wrigley can, for me, oftentimes include just going and getting on the L to leave Addison uh, Station and go to wherever my car's parked. And it's kind of fun, Pete. You get on there and all these people are on the L. It's just been the Cubs game. 90% of them have been at the game. And you see people from out of town who don't even know if they're going the right direction on the L. And they, so they want to ask the Chicago ones, am I going the right way? And I'll say, well, was this your first time at Wrigley? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, what was it like? And 
So just riding the subway out of the stadium is a cool way of extending the experience. So this is, you know, again, one of the things when I got certified in the experience economy, going back to my fundamental background as a CPA and then becoming a learning leader, I thought we can do better than that learning scrap and that 10% retention. But maybe what we need to do is apply business principles to learning and development. And the experience economy is a business book. It's not a learning book. And so I'm trying to take these models and frameworks from business that work with companies like Starbucks and Apple and many, many others and use them in learning. We will leave that to some degree as the, as the last word, because I, what I want to do is stop the, the interview now. But before I do, I've got you know 10 questions I want you to answer so the audience knows you. But I think that's a good stopping point to let people digest this information through this podcast. And, and you will know that you will be back on this podcast again for a part two version to extend the, the conversation uh, even further uh, and pick up where we left off. Because quite frankly, we both know that we could be here for a couple hours just because we're both so passionate about learning and development that this conversation could go a, a very long way. Yeah, and let me just leave one other parting shot since you kind of opened this with the experience economy and virtual learning is that I believe virtual learning needs to be an experience. Yes, all learning needs to be experienced, but even much more so virtual learning in order to get rid of the distractions in order to, is to you want to be immersed into that process. Of learning, so before I let you go, I don't think I I don't think I prepped you for this prior to the podcast, uh, but I like to kind of end up in my podcast and and try to get the audience to know you just a little bit better. And I've got ten questions; they're easy. I just kind of learn a little bit more about Bob Dean. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. He's he's a little nervous. I can tell by the voice. I'll just start it off easy: Bud Light or old style? Bud Light. And now you surprised me. Only because it's hard to get old style today. Oh, really? It's hard. Even they used to sell it at Wrigley, but Budweiser bought them out. Oh, I didn't know that because I, the last time I had old style was when I was at Wrigley. <laughs> PC or Mac? PC. Although I'm very loyal to Mac from the standpoint of an iPad and an iPhone, but I still am sitting here in front of a Dell laptop. Okay, Midway Airport or O'Hare? O'Hare. I uh, I actually think O'Hare is a very efficient airport. A lot of people who come there to make connections have a bad experience. <laughs> but as a hometown airport, it's pretty cool. Okay. And and I, I know a lot of uh, my friends who have gotten the transfer to connections in O'Hare and have not had that great experience. Uh, so uh, who's the biggest villain? Steve Bartman or the Billy Goat Curse? Well, it's probably the Billy Goat curse. Bartman got a bad rap. He, I agree. He did get a bad. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. What's your all-time favorite song? Uh, that's an interesting one. I'm a, I'm a big Nat King Cole fan from way back, so I'll say many of his songs, but I'll say Mona Lisa. Okay. What's your all-time favorite movie? You're sitting there on a Saturday, you're flipping through the channels, and all of a sudden you see it on and you can't flip anymore. Yeah, well, as you know, I'm a big baseball fan, so there's actually two of them. One is The Natural, yep. and the other is Field of Dreams. Ah, uh, build it and they will come. Uh, 
What's your favorite restaurant in Chicago? Favorite restaurant in Chicago is Harry Carey's, both downtown and in the suburbs. In the suburbs. Okay. So I know that you're a big Cubs fan, Wrigley uh, lover, and, and that's one of the great ballparks in the U.S. But what's your favorite ballpark to visit that's not in Chicago? Well, it's Camden Yards in Baltimore. I lived in Cleveland for 11 years, and I was there when Jacobs Field opened. And that was cool because that was a great stadium. And But it opened right after Camden Yards. And I used to go to the D.C. area a lot, and I made a lot of visits to Camden Yards. And that is just an incredible ballpark. And I had been in the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, and I knew I could see the difference um, just as I also saw it in Cleveland. So Camden's a great place. Well, I just learned something new because uh, you and I were both in Cleveland at the same time because I remember when the, the Jake was be, was built and, and opened and I had spent a number of times at uh, Cleveland Stadium, me and 5,000 of my closest friends watching an Indians game uh, back in the day. And, and I was actually at the game when the A's were in town playing the Indians and the ball bounced off of Conseco's head for the home run. So that's my claim to fame in Cleveland baseball. I know you've traveled a lot what what's your favorite city to visit on business it's probably new york it's fun to go to new york on business for a short trip uh, i wouldn't want to live there but yeah. it is it's fun there's always cool things to see including going to broadway shows there exactly which is always great and last but not least what book are you currently reading well i'm reading the book that we talked about earlier yes and oh you are i haven't made it through the whole book and I'm reading that one, but I will. I I'm, I think I'm going to send you another book that just came out from one of the authors of the Experience Economy, Jim Gilmore, and this book is called Look. And this book is about improving your observational skills. And one of the things Jim says, Pete, is that we're we're deteriorating in our observation skills today because. A lot of our time, we spend much of our day observing a screen in front of us. Yes. And not looking at the world that we're missing behind the screen. So this will be a wake-up call to some people when they read this book. I highly recommend it. It's going to be great. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be at a Lunch and Learn with Gilmore at the, in Chicago in a couple of weeks. I'm really looking forward to it. So I haven't read the book yet, but it's coming. Oh, cool. I, I'm going to have to pick that book up. That, that sounds like something I would want to read. And when you were saying that, reminded me of the comedian George Carlin, not about the seven words, but he coined a phrase, Vujade, said, look at, at everyday things as if you're looking at them for, at the very first time. And I think if we're caught behind that screen so much, just by removing the screen and looking at things for the everyday things for the first time, what perception do you have? What what what? How does it look to you now? Uh, and, and what can you do with that? And 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 what kind of creativity can you draw from that? So uh, can't be improvisational if you're looking at a screen. Exactly. So Bob, once again, thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I'm, I know my audience will too. Okay, thank you, Pete. Great to be with you. Good luck with these podcasts. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on virtual facilitation, and this is a very important topic, especially as it relates to learning. It reminds me of a quote that President Kennedy once said, 
Leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. It also reminds me of a quote that Pam Devine shared in episode 8. The learning curve is truly the earning curve. And part of this learning is not always in the classroom. It's in meetings and in conversations with the people we interact with on a daily basis. Now, I've learned a ton just from my conversations and interactions with Bob Dean on Think Tank and never once thought about the compliance factor, a.k.a. CPE credit. Remember, the learning curve is truly the earning curve. You heard our conversation about how improvisational skills, especially listening and focus, are necessary in being a successful virtual facilitator. Actually, your improvisation skills are necessary to being a successful facilitator, whether it's virtual or face-to-face. You might want to revisit episode zero where I discuss the principles of improvisation in greater detail. Now, this was a fun and informative interview, and I hope you enjoyed it. I would like to ask you for a favor. If you've liked this episode, would you go out to iTunes and write a review? In return for your writing a review, I will send you a free copy of my book. Now, that's a deal. So after you write the review and the post on iTunes, send me an email at peter at petermargaritas.com with your mailing address, and I will send you a signed copy of my book. Now, in episode 32, I interview Randy Nelson, who's the CEO of Gold Dolphins LLC and an author of a book called The Second Decision. So until next time, use your improvisational skills to become a better facilitator. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.